0: Welcome to The Third Hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Hebrew Bible. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Others will sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Hebrew Bible, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to The Third Hour podcast. We're glad to have you. Thank you for joining us for episode 19, Wandering. I'm your host, Taylor. Amanda. Andrew. This week, we are covering Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, through chapter 22, verse 1. Amanda, you want to tell us what happens in these lovely chapters?
1: So, the author says that we start with the Israelites leaving Sinai in perfectly prescribed order, um, only to immediately complain about something. Something. Um, As a consequent, God burns parts of the camp, so Moses talks him down, and now you are familiar with the cycle. that The rest of this reading is going to follow, so you can skip ahead. It's just various and assorted complaining, Moses intervening, and God murdering less people than he was originally (laughs) planning to murder. Um, Next, we complain about wanting something other than manna. Moses intercedes by complaining about the complaining, which is apparently fine, and God sends quails will pretend they weren't sent before. Miriam and Aaron then complain about Moses marrying outside the covenant. God curses, curses them. Moses intercedes. The entire group gets to Canaan, sends spies. The spies come back and are all, you know what? The land is really great, but there's lots of people and they're kind of scary. Um, and so God says he's going to kill everybody and just start over with a new nation. I feel like we've invested a really long period of time in this, and it seems like disproportionate anger, but okay. Moses talks got out of it by saying that everybody's going to gossip and say that God is weak if he has to go the genocide route. <laughs> <laughs> so God says, fine, you're just cursed to wander in the desert for 40 years and never get home. Then we get a tangent onto more sacrifice rules, and then more complaining about people who are accusing Moses of letting the power go to his head and that non-Levites should be allowed to enter and do stuff in the tabernacle. Moses finally loses his temper for a little bit and then intercedes, so only the accusers and their families, very specific women and children, get eaten by the earth. The rest of the population objects to that level of dying, Gets smitten by a plague and Moses intercedes. I told you, you could skip. I don't know why you're still here. (laughs) Um, We rehash that Levites are for the tabernacle and and they get portions of offerings in exchange. And then remember those logistics questions I had about dead bodies last week? Here we get the ceremony for getting clean post corpse touching. Then we get right back to complaining because there's no water, which seems legitimate, but whatever. Moses intercedes, smacks a rock, and makes water, but something about that process Moses did wrong, and then he and Aaron get exiled too. Aaron's authority gets transferred to his son, and he immediately dies, and that is not at all suspiciously close to the scolding. Um, Then we try and go through a land called Edom and get refused, so we have to go out and around and complain about it. We get cursed with poisonous snakes and then there's the famous story of the bronze serpent um then we want to go through amorite territory they refuse just like edom did but this time israel is like fine we're going to start killing people and then we end our reading by singing a ballad about murder i feel like i have only read the bronze serpent portion of this in the version where Moses calls God merciful and context is really important.
0: <laughs> I feel like I recognize more of these stories. I feel like at some point some seminary teacher told me the earth swallowing you up story to scare me into better prophet obedience.
1: Oh, I'm sure. But again, <laughs> context. <laughs> like, I also would be ticked. But? Go so
0: impressions, what are your impressions? I went first last time.
2: Kind of interesting that we've read most of this material already. Yeah. yeah, meaning
0: we've seen the story before. Oh yeah, this is, a, this is all a doublet,
2: yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's some more details, there's some differences, there's some uh, contradictions, to use the C word. Uh, but it follows pretty much the same format that we saw in the middle of Exodus. Um, even to the point, like Amanda pointed out, well, just ignore that we've seen the quail, you know, ignore that we've had some battles with some people with very suspiciously similar names that we've already seen Moses go to God and be like, well, oh, you don't want the Egyptians to be talking about you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, you the know. Vanity argument we've <laughs> yeah. seen
0: that before. <laughs>
2: uh, so it's, it's just interesting. I and mean, we've seen the water from a rock. Mm-hmm.
1: Which- yeah. And so he does that basically exactly the same, but this time it was wrong.
2: Yeah. And, 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 um,
1: and like, I did some Googling on that one and like, it was a, paper thin argument about he was supposed to tell the rock to split not hit the rock yeah. with his stab and, and isn't like-
2: that funny that it says that maybe it's because he struck the rock instead of like coaxing it with his voice but then you read the, the Exodus account and he is told to hit the rock
0: Yeah. yeah. And- plus why, why does the rock get nice persuasion <laughs> none <laughs> of the humans get that kind of treatment they just get swallowed by the earth
2: yes. <laughs> so nobody it's It's interesting that almost every time they refer to this story about what Moses did wrong, it's a different reason. Mm. Like they give some different interpretation of why he is kept out of the promised land. And it seems to come back to this moment, but no one can agree, even in here, even in the text on what he did wrong. I mean, textually, he sure didn't seem to do anything funky. I don't know.
1: No, it's one of those things where it's like, wait, what? What did I miss? What, What was I not reading? Like, oh, no, I read that.
2: I read that properly. And there's the story we like to tell about it. Um, The way that I have heard it many times is that Moses elevates himself over God somehow.
0: Oh, I think I have heard a version of that. Yeah. And
2: it's like, well, is it that they're like, okay, do you want us to get water? And then Moses is kind of impatient. Like they're supposed to be like, well, God will give you. And so Moses just like smacks it. (laughs) Oh, here's water. Is he just like sick of like all this preamble to miracles? Like, Every time with the Lord, He makes me, you know, build up the miracle. I'm just gonna do it. But it that doesn't really bear out in the text. And so anyway, it's very, it's very important, I think, to go through these and try to look at what the story is telling us as opposed to what we've received culturally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes that's where the nuance lies. That's where we can draw out new things instead of just assuming we know the story.
0: And and that's honestly, that's my impression of this part is just how difficult that still is for me. Like we've been practicing this for months and I just, it is so hard for me not to bring my cultural assumptions where, you know, Yahweh is supposed to be this like all loving God that I think of. And he's, not he's like an angry character in a morality play and and actually sometimes when i can get my brain to shift there i start liking the story better (laughs) because i'm less offended and it's just it becomes like a morality play like you know you can you start to draw lessons about like useful complaining versus not very useful complaining or like instead of having to try to justify why god is dumping children into the earth right and um but it's just, it's it's so unnatural for me to do that, that it's still uncomfortable. And so I just, it it just, so much work every time I read these stories. So much work. You know, it's like, it's interesting
2: too, that that work, you don't have to do it when you read like a Greek morality play. Right. Like you understand, well, like, okay, well, so here I am reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, and these gods are behaving in ways that are very alien to me. Right. But I still understand that this is going through moral story beats. Right. It's just that the morality is different. Right. And and part of the fun of it is like trying to understand how the characters how how they get out of a, a God's favor and how they kind of weasel around that disfavor or how they come back into the God's favor.
1: And that you've got one God who hates Odysseus and the other one who loves them, and they're they're just battling it out, and it takes them 20 years to get home. Like yeah, d- nobody exactly. kills him. Exactly. <laughs> but we just but, get a tug of war. But you
2: read this and we're supposed to be, you know, Judeo-Christian values. Okay, where are they? Right. Um <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and
0: like, <laughs> Exactly.
2: And and so it's it is important to step out of this, look at this kind of as a foreign myth the way you would if you read the iliad or the odyssey or the aeneid or any of these other texts and say what are the characters doing to navigate this very alien morality and it does have internal consistencies and it does have uh it, it does have a texture it does have ways that people can placate the god or please the god and and you're right. There's, there's good assemblies and bad assemblies and good complaining and bad complaining. And sometimes the God needs his ego massage. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's very Greek in that sense. It's really not Greek, but it's Greek yeah. the way we would recognize a mm-hmm. Greek
0: myth. Yeah.
2: But, but like you say, we bring all of our culture to it. And so we can't make that leap even though we will make that leap very naturally reading any number of other myths. Yeah. You know, so.
0: And I, I just think I, I, it's mm-hmm. worth trying to make the leap though, because I do feel like these stories, they just, they take on such a different tone when I'm able to make them. I, I can, I I don't have to be offended all the time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And you would be because, because I don't have to think like that. Somebody is, I don't have to think that I have to make my morality fit. Yeah. And so when it doesn't, I don't have to be, you know, upset and affronted um, or feel like my, you know, my faith house is going to crumble. I can just, I don't know. I actually don't even know quite how to interact with it yet. I don't know what the right, it's just, we bring so much baggage to this text and I guess my impression this week is I'm really feeling the baggage right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a hard time seeing through it.
1: That's my, my thought for this, that like, I have a, clear and present statement on I don't know this dude this is not the God I'm familiar with but now in my own mind I'm trying to work out how does one have a, a stable relationship with God if this is God like mm-hmm. with this dude well and like how selective we are <clears throat> about the chunks of the story that we tell and now it's ruined the good passages when I get there because now I've got all this other stuff and, I, and we'll get there to parts of it and I'll further on that, but it's, it's tainted the whole thing.
2: I'm curious if we think, do we, do we feel like it should be tainted in the sense that I, I actually find it uh, somewhat unethical and this is me. Uh, I'm not saying anyone else needs to feel this way. I've actually reached a place where I feel like the way that we teach this is unethical to single out these pleasant stories and teach them as though they are the the nuggets, as though they're the, uh, as though they're emblematic of the whole. We basically create a logical fallacy through the way we teach it, Mm -hmm. where we say, okay, these are the essential parts and we want those parts to color outward into everything else. But the reality is, is that they shouldn't be approached that way. So I actually think we do, something uh, profoundly educationally unethical with the way we approach this text, which is that we are, uh, we're whitewashing a document because we, we don't want to feel discomfort. Yeah.
1: I think that we is the difficult part that if I went out and whitewashed now, it would be whitewashing because I am now in possession of knowledge and went out and, pretended that this bad stuff isn't in here, Mm -hmm. that would be unethical of me. But the me of last year who lacked this knowledge and hadn't done a deep dive of the text, but who felt genuinely and sincerely like I had a really good grasp and had done a deep dive on the Bible. can, Can you be held to a knowledge that you don't have but probably should have had. Cause like it's there, it's been there for a couple thousand, but like it's that. And then like, yeah,
2: that's a fascinating question. I think in part, because one of the, th- so, okay. And, and I want to kind of put this in a sandbox off to the side. One of the things actually that I think I, that I wish we would take from this as a church or as a people, as a we is that, we have built up. So you've probably heard it said that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, whatever, however you want to call it, is quintessentially American, right? Mm-hmm. And it is. It's it's nineteenth century American revivalism turned into its own strand of religion, and and part of that is a very strict individualism in in terms of how we approach God. This this idea that we are such a strong moral agent. That, that we approach God. We don't even believe in the fall being like this necessarily, ne- there's no original sin attached to that. It, the fall was good, ultimately, um, which is pretty unique in Christianity uh, because it places all of the onus for you on you as opposed to on like, well, you were born into this world, sinful, etc. But this text would propose, and I think this is actually something good that this text proposes, even if this text takes it to some extremes that there is such a thing as an institutional or corporate sin that if you inherit uh, a sin, or even if you're ignorant of it, um, that there is some degree of responsibility for it. And here's why I think that's slightly good is recently, for instance, there's a there's sort of a discussion going on in the church between this idea of should the church, how does it remediate, say racism? In its past. The church has had a, a past that has been full of racism and sexism, all sorts of things like that.
1: Past, cough,
2: cough. Sure, past, cough, cough. <laughs> and I would argue that the now is the past. That you can't really approach the now until you can agree on the past in a lot of cases. And and part of agreeing on what current problems are is looking at the past and identifying those problems. When I feel like we've been instructed by church leaders to approach that, you know, to be to to actually try to root out racism. But part of that, to me as a historian, is acknowledging what racism is, and maybe the ways it's been handed down to us. But because we're such strong individualists, you start trying to have this conversation in the church, and the reaction of most people is immediate, well, I'm not racist. Well, that's true. You are not responsible for overt racism. But you still come from a tradition that has that history of racism and sexism and other problems, which means, according to this text, and I would say according to most ethics, that you still bear some responsibility for it. Uh, Just as you bear some responsibility for the good things that you've inherited, you know, the the privileges, the caste, you, you have parents who gave you a good education, gave you good morals, a good work ethic. You're responsible for that. In the same way, you are responsible for the cultural that raised you. You, in part, inherit a need to repair that culture. Now, that doesn't mean that you are individually complicit, but you are corporately complicit.
0: And this text is very clear that there is some sort of corporate sin. Right. Even when you don't know. I mean, it's even very clear about corporate unintentional sin.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: And and this text, <laughs> what we've, we've talked previously about festivals,
2: like we've talked about Yom Kippur, where it talks a lot about, well, over the year, you have accumulated any number of ignorant sins. And so here's a festival that's all about expunging sins you didn't even know you'd made. And ideally, you can see a situation where that becomes a time of personal and national or corporate or churchwide or institutional reflection on, okay, well, what are we sacrificing for? What are the corporate sins we're expunging? And I love that idea. I think it's taken to extreme here, but I actually do wish that our church would uh, fight individualism just a little bit. Just push back on it even the slightest bit. Because to me, it's beautiful when Pope Francis goes to Canada to apologize officially for, for the Part that the Catholic Church played in the residential school program. Mm -hmm. To me, that's beautiful because he's acknowledging that, well, you know, did Pope Francis make that happen? Absolutely not. Pope Francis didn't build the residential schools or run them or abuse children and bury them in mass graves. He didn't do that. But he's wise enough to understand that as somebody who has benefited from his institution, he also owes responsibility for that institution. And you can't really have it both ways. And to me, this is something that even Jesus is going to talk about. That's Caesar's coin, right? You have benefits. Well, whatever benefits you, you owe some degree of culpability and responsibility to it. It owns you in some way. And so I I do wish that we would take this uh, very clear expression of that and make it less bloody. (laughs) But also just acknowledge that it's okay to say that institutionally, we have committed some sort of crime against ourselves and against others, and that's natural. All institutions will do that, but the righteous thing is to somehow try to move past it.
0: Uh, there's some sort of reparative element there. Yeah, and, and I I think I, I agree with what you're saying, and and I also agree that it really... <clears throat> So much of our inability to do that comes back to the way we read this document. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We we can't even deal with this two thousand year old document as it is, as it actually is, instead of as we wish it were. If if something that far removed from us, if we can't approach that with some degree of honesty, how are you how are we going to approach, you know, a, a priesthood ban that ended not even 50 years ago, right? Am I doing my math right? 1978? Yeah. Not even 50 years ago. How can we possibly think we're going to be able to approach that with any degree of honesty when we can't actually read the book of Numbers? <laughs> and, um, you know, and granted, it's a little bloodier in Numbers. <laughs> as as uh, horrible as the priesthood band was, we didn't dump any, I mean, well. Uh,
1: then, but, then we enter the realm of, is the physical harm done by people being swallowed up by the earth? worse than the psychological and spiritual harm of being told that because of your race, you are not worthy to access God in this way.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, the number, the way that we approach that always, you know, is to say like, well, no actual violence was done. Ignoring the fact that violence has a second definition in the dictionary that we just love to drop that. Yes. Definition one, physical harm. Definition two. Is is about internal, emotional, or spiritual traumas. Uh, now, when we say is something like the priesthood ban vo- doing violence, of course we're not saying that it's as bad as you know. Insert the thing you are trying to use to
1: to, to yeah to <laughs>
2: squiggle out of culpability. Yeah, yeah. Just say it. oh, <laughs> uh, well, I was thinking about like Jim Crow laws, yeah, right? you know, yeah. deep South lynchings. <laughs> but it is still doing harm to families yep. and to individuals now maybe you object to the word violence okay well now you're just you're you're effectively leaning on semantics right to escape culpability and this text one of the things i do like about it is if you approach it as a morality play it is not willing to let everybody squirm out of that culpability some people will and it's super telling who does and who doesn't, yeah. which I really like about the text too. It sure seems like Miriam gets comeuppances.
0: Yeah, but but Aaron. not Aaron. Yeah.
1: How, <laughs> how, well, not Aaron yet.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, Aaron does eventually. But in that, in that, yeah, anyway, we we should get to the text yeah, anyway. But... So
2: I just I'm I, I'm not offering this in any way as an apologetic. Yeah. Okay. I I'm offering this as a as a way to approach this text and get something that I think is an incredibly relevant lesson that I think even its people didn't quite internalize. I think there's a balance between individual sin and corporate sin, obviously. Right. I'm not saying that you should go back to original sin as a model template that has its own problems. I just think that in in Mormonism, we basically recreate original sin, but in a way that advantages certain people over others where you say, well, blacks were less valiant in the pre-mortal life because now you're saying, well, because we don't believe in corporate sin, they must. their position in life must have been dictated by some sort of some individual, individual sin, sin, but it's something yeah. we can't see. Oh, how convenient.
1: And we just politely ignore the Nephite and the Lamanite thing going on in the book of scripture that we think is perfect.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's all I'm saying is let's offer that. I want to offer that as something to keep an eye out for in some of this text.
0: Yeah, and, and I think my, I just, I I personally have a great hope that if we can have more honest conversations about these kinds of things, we can actually root out racism. We can actually, like, we can do something about these problems. Um, and I, I actually think in some ways, one of the gifts of the Old Testament is it gives us a place to start that is close enough to be uncomfortable and actually access some of the real problems we need to deal with, but is far enough that it's a little bit safer of a sandbox to start the conversation in.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I wish that our come follow me materials were even trying. Yes, I agree. To have the conversation.
0: (laughs) Yes, I agree. Well, should we get into the complaining? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Let the complaining start. We break camp cloud lifts off the tabernacle
2: it's been 19 days since the census and less than a year after their arrival in the wilderness
0: mm-hmm. i have not been keeping track of the time no they say it. <laughs> oh right uh
2: i think it's interesting to set that up because we've got we've meandered through so much exodus and the yeah.
0: so we break camp we have moses talks every time the ark moves maybe you're right maybe he is getting tired of all this uh prelude Um, Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he would say, return, O Lord, of the ten thousand thousands of Israel.
1: End of chapter 10.
0: End of chapter 10. Yep. Um, And as soon as we start in chapter 11, and most of chapter 10, by the way, is just another list of people, right? Like who's taking down the tabernacle, who's moving out with who. Yep. And then we get into 11 where we have our first complaint and we have like a complaint in miniature in the first three verses. And Mm -hmm. as Amanda said, it's not really clear what they're complaining about, but
1: a bunch of people get burned. Our our cycle gets set up.
0: Yeah. And then immediately after the fire of the Lord burned against them, the rabble among them had a strong craving. And the Israelites also wept again and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our drink is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So they don't like the heavenly bread. And uh, this time Moses complains. I do like the con response between Moses and God. Well, and then
1: Mo- <laughs> Moses, Moses gets to complain about their complaining.
0: Right. That's and then, allowed.
1: And then Moses gets to go full drama. Yeah. eleven fifteen. If this is the way you are going to treat me, then put me to death at once. <laughs> Like, I am so done with this shit. God, you don't even know. Just kill me and be done with it. Like, oh, we just went to like 8,000 and it's been a year.
0: Well, I even noticed, I mean, to that point, there's like, there's parallels. I mean, why didn't you let us die there? Moses is saying, I want to die now. I mean, it's almost like he is doing the same thing. Yes. But he doesn't get in trouble for it.
1: Very similar themes of complaint.
0: Yeah. And uh, so I don't know why he doesn't get in trouble. I guess because he's Moses. Well, I think it's kind of like, you know,
2: gossiping is bad. But if you gossip about someone who's gossiping about you, it kind of flies, right? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: and there, yeah, Moses. And the, yeah. In theory, yes. But then you're the one who gets caught if you're not right at it for gossiping about the person who's gossiping. It's a matter of... You know,
2: I'm, I'm going to trust you.
1: It's, 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 a, it's a matter of don't get caught. <laughs>
2: This is interesting ethics.
1: Yes, let, let me the, give you woman 101. The, the
2: Hebrew Bible of Amanda would be whoever gets caught gets punished. <laughs> uh, yes.
1: It's like little kid 101. Come on, man. You had siblings.
0: So God's solution is to give Moses other people that the people can complain to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So gather some of the elders of Israel, bring them to the tent of meeting. I will come down and talk with you there. I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people along with you so that you will not bear it all by yourself. Seems like a reasonable solution. Different reason that the
2: 70 are created than mm-hmm. uh, originally.
0: <laughs> well, it doesn't oh, yeah, seem... well, what was it originally? It was
2: Jethro's advice. Oh, that's where right. Where he was saying, hey, a lot of responsibilities. Right. You need to have a 70 to yeah. divide it up. Here God is like, all right, well, too much spirit for you. You need 70 <laughs> to divide it up. Very different reason. Yeah, yeah. Does it say they prophesy in the NRSV? I don't remember.
1: Um, yep. In 27, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp.
2: It's interesting that that's not really what the Hebrew word means.
1: Oh, what's the Hebrew word It means mean?
2: ecstatic expressions. Oh. So it would be dancing and uh, ecstatic writing, glossolalia, ecstatic speech. Yeah. So when we <clears throat> see prophesying, that's one of those, like, Christianisms. that are like, oh, look, prophets – where it's really like, and, and so just very different.
1: Is glossolalia the same thing as tongues? Yes. Yes. Glossolalia is better. <laughs> much better. The reason
2: I like glossolalia as a word is it kind of expresses what it is. It <laughs> yeah, absolutely it really does. Because <laughs> yes. you're like glossolalia, ah. and you're like ah oh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> oh, I got that. That's the crazy stuff.
1: That was clear.
0: I think this is this is an interesting section too because these two men that were ex what being ecstatic they weren't originally among the chosen ones so joshua gets like annoyed he runs to moses and says stop them but moses said to him are you jealous for my sake would that all the lord's people were prophets is that also a pro would that also be translated differently yeah it's like a hit and a bit
2: as one who does ecstatic okay. stuff yeah
0: and that the Lord would put Ooh, His Spirit we'd on answer them.
1: answer in Hebrew, like we, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hit bet, the, the answer yeah. is a, a bay,
2: so he'd be a hitnabet. bat. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I was with you the first time, you know. <laughs> I-
0: <laughs> anyway, so here we get a very democratic version, like everyone should be a prophet, kind of, which we're going to see get inverted. Yeah. Um, but. Mm-hmm. And then the quail come. God's like, I'm going to give you meat until you can't handle it anymore. But then apparently he changes his mind. He just gives them enough to poison them. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. What makes you say that? Because last time they didn't get poisoned? Well, yeah. I mean, th- this is... So as a doublet, it's a very different yeah. approach. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, it's very... so. So this is interesting. This is one of those places where we have what we would call an inclusio. So... And inclusio is where we will use a distinctive word in two places to mark a thematic connection. So at the beginning, when it talks about the riffraff,
0: uh-huh. and then at
2: the end, who eats the quail and gets poisoned, it's the riffraff. So it's a deliberate callback. Uh, so all of that intervening stuff is being connected by a distinctive word. What does riffraff mean? So, okay, the, the theory is that it's probably the non-Israelites who were traveling with (laughs) us. Yeah. Well, and the way it phrases it at the beginning of, uh, 11, uh, the rabble among them had a strong craving and the Israelites also wept again. So it's this idea that, so the riffraff, whoever they are, (laughs) the non-Israelites, not a very nice word for them. Um, and they, they kind of influence some Israelites. And so this poisoning is also, uh, an expurgative meant to, uh, Get rid of, purify, yeah. Get rid of the riffraff <laughs> who happen to not be uh, of the right nationality. I just love it when the theories make it
0: better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so then, uh, Miriam and Aaron are going to complain, and this time it's it's not about something general. They're mad about something specific that Moses did. So Moses, I guess, took another wife. What is? Who, do we understand? What do we to understand from Cushite women? What's the well, okay, so Kushite, some translate
2: it Ethiopian. Okay. So it would be a dark-skinned woman mm-hmm. that we're talking about here. Um, some people have tried to argue that cushites that it might be referring actually to a a, per, a, a type of Kushite Midianite. Um, and so it could be Zipporah. Oh, that they're complaining that Zipporah is outside what they conceive to be like the family uh, inst- covenant or institution. So
1: we're complaining about this two children in two years after we've left Egypt.
2: <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I mean, so if you think about the timeline, remember that he had kind of sent her away.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then she he met up with her with Jethro in Exodus after coming out of Egypt, which would actually make this timeline work. Because they would have only recently met Zipporah. Oh, yeah. So did he take another wife? Or is this that they're seeing his wife and she's dark skinned? Either way, not a good look. For Aaron (laughs) and Maria. Um, But just be aware that that's... So there's two very different reads on that. Is it a second wife or is it just Zipporah who happens to be sufficiently foreign that she doesn't look like whatever they are, Israelite? Okay. Okay.
0: It makes more sense why they're annoyed about it, though, if we do interpret the chapter before of being all the non Israelites were killed. Yeah. I mean, if God just purged all the non Israelites because apparently they're ruining the camp, then like Miriam and Aram going, like, why not Moses' wife? Yeah. Also makes some sense. <laughs> right. Still doesn't make them look good. But then again, God's not looking great in that, in that story either. So. Right. Speaking of her, I, I did notice, and I, I think we have to go back a little bit for this, but I wanted to ask, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact verse, but um, they ask Moses' father-in-law to, like, be a guide for them, right?
2: Yeah, and it, he has a different He has name. a different name. So yeah. I was going to
0: ask, is, is, am I supposed to understand that to be Jethro, or? or
2: Yeah, it could be Jethro. Um, I mean, so Jethro generally has, I don't remember, three or four different names. So here it's Hildad or something like that. Um so bad. Hilbab. Can you give me a verse?
1: Uh, ten twenty nine. Thank you. Moses said to Hobab, son of Reuel.
2: When in the in other texts, remember his name changed from Royel, uh to Jethro. Okay. Mm. So he has a bunch of names, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, there are different feelings on it. Is it that it's preserving J versus E? Yeah. Versus some other document, you'll notice in here, for instance, that. So we're dealing with two major sources, probably. And there's the priestly material, so P, uh, as always being super broad with P, because it was probably written over like 200 years, different goals and interests. And then we have what we generally just call the old myth, uh, the old epic material, because we don't know if it's J or E. It's really easy to peel it apart in like Genesis and Exodus, where they're always right next to each other. Much harder here where it has no nothing to put it right next to. So we just say some sort of old epic material. So you have P who, P is always listing like the rituals and all the numbers and camps and people. And then old epic material tends to go back into stories about Moses and kind of the things happening in the camp. Um, so it's it's really hard to peel it apart. We just don't know.
0: There you go. It's also different because in the other account, he goes back to Midian, right? Am i remembering that right. He like
2: they're they're near Midian, and Jethro comes out to meet them. Uh-huh. Jethro goes back to his people. Um, we're going to see that things don't go quite as well with the Midianites here. Um, <laughs> okay, but you know, um, but some some people who read this in light of like liberation theory do like to glom onto the fact that it seems like the complaining is racial or at least the reason they give for the complaining is racial, because they give two totally different reasons within two verses. Because first it's complaining about the Cushite woman whom he has married, which may be Zipporah. Uh. But then verse two, they say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So it seems like it might be at root jealousy. Yeah. So, but they you so, but, liberation uh, theologian might look at this and say but the the guys that they used uh, they really wanted authority and power but the guys they used was racism mm-hmm. and god is very quick to punish that so this would be an indication that god is not a respecter of persons uh, seems a harsh uh, contradiction to the previous chapter <laughs> yeah but ag- well, but again we- who's writing riffraff you know it, it gets muddled yeah. not
1: a respecter of persons but we're very specific about which one becomes a leper? So yeah. yeah. not a leper?
2: Yeah. So, why is uh, Miriam punished whereas Aaron kind of squirms out of it again? He did so a little while ago with the golden calf. Where he's mm-hmm. like, oh, I threw this stuff in the fire. And, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Look what came out. I can't throw <laughs> um, so, like we were talking about corporate punishment, here we seem to have very individualized punishments for one person, but very corporate punishments for someone else where they're allowed to get out of something. Very interesting tension.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I wonder what what is it about Miriam that makes her get punished, whereas Aaron doesn't? Oh, it's a mystery.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I could never guess. It's so
1: vague. <laughs> maybe she was mouthy and not wearing a hat.
2: There maybe, you go. yeah, maybe. You know, i I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to guess.
0: <laughs> so then they send scouts. We arrive at the promised land. Scouts go in. It's a nice land, flowing with milk and honey, but as Amanda said, scary people.
2: Verse 3, back in 12. Another another big proof Moses didn't write this. Sorry.
1: Oh, Moses was very humble.
2: <laughs> so either Moses <laughs> wrote this about himself. Which, <laughs> which
1: is the least humble thing ever.
2: Or an author wrote it about him. Anyway, uh, many medieval commentators found this to be a difficult uh, verse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, scouts bring the unfavor—they bring this unfavorable report at Steen because it scares everybody. They just—they say, "Why couldn't you just let us die in Egypt? Now we're just going to get killed by these people." More complaining.
1: Well, and it's uh, fun complaining because, <clears> like, <throat> I know logically, it's—I'm like, assuming a doublet here where they're all—it's that you know. They're the Amalekites and they're just, you know, big. And then we tell the story again and like they're Nephilim at the end of chapter 13. And so like, I know it's just a doublet, but like the narrative part of me is that like, I can totally see human beings like, no, you don't understand how big they were. And then I tell you that they're like a foot taller than I am, which is nothing. Cause I'm short. And then you tell someone and then as like word spreads through the camp, then all of a sudden they're, these massive winged creatures yeah. descend from the Nephilim. And like, yeah. it's like, I know it's not that it's narratively much more interesting.
0: Well, it could be that
1: people being people. No, you don't understand. They have wings.
0: Yeah. And by the end, we're grasshoppers. Yes. Of course, Joshua and Caleb say, we can take them.
2: And, yeah, you notice they don't actually correct their stupid reports. <laughs> they don't, they're not like no, they're normal size. Yeah, they're uh, they're like ah oh, no, there there might be a political motive in here where he says like I don't remember how he says it, but he says like this is a land that consumes men or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it might actually devours be, its inhabitants um, because remember this is the crossroads <laughs> uh, between great empires. Mm. And uh, everyone in there is pretty much always at war and getting conquered by those great empires. And actually, it will devour Israel (laughs) eventually. Yeah. Multiple times. Yeah. So, uh, in a way, kind of a...
0: Foreshadowing. Yeah, sort of foreshadowed there. Yeah. So, chapter 14, we get a whole bunch of response. Moses and Joshua and Caleb lecture the people. God wants to kill everybody. So, God gets really mad. How long will this people despise me and how long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. This is kind of a recurring theme that he's just going to start over with just Moses.
2: Well, I mean, this whole thing is probably another doublet. Yeah. You might remember God threatening to make Moses the father of a, na- of a new nation <laughs> before, Moses appealing to God's vanity. Yep. Um, they battle someone whose name begins with. Amalek Mm -hmm. now they fight Amalekites sort of a different outcome this time yeah
1: so how at the beginning I rambled that there are like two parts in this chunk of scripture that I feel like I've gone over before in my life prior to Andrew and one of them is in verse 18 here in chapter 14 and like I've heard this quoted that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity, parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And we tend to ignore that part. Right. And then like that part is also an exodus someplace. But so I've heard this quoted before, but like context just sets it on fire. Yeah. He's, yes, telling you how slow he is to anger after giving me five verses beforehand where it's just placating his pride. And so, like, your your mercy has no meaning Yeah, that we're talking about here. It's about him. Yeah.
2: In this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that talking about visiting Uh, sins on the third and fourth generation is actually also a sign of God's mercy, because the corporate sin is so intense that one generation couldn't bear it. And so the thought there is that God is spreading that sin out over multiple generations. Oh, interesting. So when it's connected with mercy, it actually would be understood to be merciful. So just as like I would posit that we kind of have an individual theology run amok, you can, they have a corporate theology run amok huh. where they have to take this corporate recompense that they have to pay and spread it out over multiple generations. They feel it so deeply. It's
0: overwhelming to try and... Yeah,
2: like yeah. You, you, cannot plea, you cannot make good on whatever you've done wrong within one generation, so you've got to spread it out. Huh. And that is a God being merciful in this context, super different to us again, yeah. from our totally polar opposite in, yeah. on that spectrum of individual to corporate. But there it is.
1: But still th- that's your great display of mercy immediately following the paragraph of everybody's going to talk about you. Yeah. And you're going to be so yeah. embarrassed when you go to the God parties on whatever mountain you guys <laughs> go to the parties at.
0: Or even just hearing the Egyptians talk about it.
1: Yeah, Ra's gonna turn up and make fun of you. It's gonna be real uncomfortable. Oh, it well,
2: would, and, it would be embarrassing. Yeah, like Ra is like, you ate my snakes, <laughs> but uh, you couldn't even walk across the desert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a under-
0: good, it's a good vanity appeal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's it's well well said. So uh, he is placated to some extent. And he's just going to make them go back to the wilderness and die a natural death instead of killing them all right there and then and there. Yep, that's
2: nice.
0: And uh, it's interesting that they immediately. I I actually found this part kind of. Here's where I I I got a little bit into the morality play mindset, where I do think there's there's a way to look at this as just kind of a, a good folk tale that like if you get to the end of your journey, that's a really bad time to chicken out, <laughs> <laughs> like. Because all of a sudden you realize, like, well, if I'm not going to go forward, like, well, I'm in the wilderness. Like, there's nowhere to go back to. And it seems like that's what happens to the people. God's like, okay, fine. The alternative is back into the wilderness. And they're all kind of like, oh, well, we're going to fight that battle after all. But, of course, it doesn't go well this time. But, again, this does also speak to me at, like, the, the context matters so much because slow to anger, you know, they didn't need that much persuading. Like, what if (laughs) Moses and Joshua actually had just, like, sat down with them for a minute and been like, look, guys.
1: (laughs) These are our options. Yeah. Egypt is no longer an option.
0: So they lose to the Amalekites. They're driven into Horma. And then we get an aside about unintentional sin offerings. We've kind of already talked about this. Do Do we want to add much to it? I mean, we've talked about this idea of needing to deal with well, I guess I skipped at the beginning. We get what to add to your burnt offering, ostensibly so the priests can eat. <laughs> that's, that's what I was understanding from it. But
2: you know, the, you know, many people have asked, why is this, you know, this seems like an interjection for P. Yeah, a, it's very random. Like, why did the redactor, actor, whoever the Reed priest is, decide, you know what, what they need right now is to hear more about offerings and, and the fringes on the garments. But actually, uh, one commentator, Abraham Ibn Ezra, has has said maybe this is meant as a reassurance to the children of the people who are now dying that God's um, that God's attention uh, is going to migrate from the parent generation to them. Which I think would be kind of an interest. I I, I think that maybe that's somebody trying to make something
0: fit, but I I think it's a good fit. Mm. And 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 this particular thing about sacrifice would do that, just because it it shows that God is still interested in their sacrifices.
2: Yeah, that God is still there. God mm-hmm. is still going to accept your uh, your sacrifices. The fringes on the garments being added, yeah, like as a, as a sign that you're that you have the commandments that you're under God's eye in a sense. The penalty for violating the Sabbath is not very pleasant, no <laughs> um, but but kind of uh, reinforcing to the next generation that they are still important, yeah, so I can buy it. I, I don't think maybe that's why it was redacted in, but I can see how one could get that out of it.
0: yeah That's right, we skipped excuse me, we skipped over the man collecting sticks on the Sabbath who was stoned, and yeah, that's fun, yeah,
1: and again, everyone's all. What do we do about this? So you're dying for a covenant for like a law break that nobody knew was a law break, let alone mortal sin.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. That like if no if literally no one knows what to do it, they'd have to like put him in a holding cell where they go talk to Moses. Yeah. How is he supposed to know?
1: And then like you don't get any pass for Oh, nobody knew this one, but next time. (laughs) Yeah. Next time.
0: Speaking of harsh punishments, in chapter 16, we get the rebellion of Korah, Dothan, and Abiram. Or maybe it's two separate rebellions of it, Korra it, and two, Dothan and yeah, Abiram.
2: This is almost certainly two separate accounts that have been very, very awkwardly threaded
1: together. <laughs> yeah.
2: Usually whoever is redacting this, you know, we've, we've seen some missteps in threading accounts together. Notably, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about Joseph being sold into slavery. Who did it? Yeah. Uh, who, who's the hero, et cetera. But in this, this account, it seems like there's a lot of mistakes. So anyway, just keep that in mind. It, it's effectively two totally separate, uh, rebellions. They take place in separate places. The punishments are separate, but here the author is giving them to us, uh, kind of uh cinnamon twisted together in a really weird way.
0: Yeah. And it seems like there is kind of two different types of rebellions, right? The reason for the rebellion is different. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to remember which one's which one of them. It's all about. So Cora
2: is a non Levite or is she? <laughs> okay. Here's the problem. So, so Cora. Okay. So apparently the way it gets uh, interpreted is that Cora is a Levite who wants more of the authority of the Aaronites. Right. Or is Korah and can I also imply this is is Korah a non-levite who wants authority of the Levites? It kind of implies both, but the major way that it comes through is that first one, that this is a this is a levitical rebellion. Okay? So this would be a religious rebellion. The second one, um, Uh, Dathan and Abiram, this is a political rebellion. These are people descended from Reuben. So this is bringing back that great uh, biblical theme of feuding siblings. Here's the oldest child who would be entitled to a whole bunch of stuff is playing second fiddle. So here's a political rebellion. I have heard it suggested that maybe one of the reasons it's wrapped together this way is that maybe the author wants to suggest that, you can't separate the political and the religious. I don't know if I buy that so much as just like it's two parallel accounts. So maybe it's the same thing, and the author knew, the redactor
0: knew that. And so, <clears throat> who knows? Yeah. Um, so uh, in one case, they get burned. Although it's kind of unclear. Like Cora gets burned and swallowed by the earth. It seems like in the in the awkward yeah, putting together yeah. of the two stories. And I mean, it's just kind of. Morbid. I mean, so uh they put fire in their censors and all these people get burned by their censors, and Moses he takes the so this is verse thirty eight. The censors of these sinners have become holy at the cost of their lives, make them into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, for they presented them before the Lord and they became holy. So they like put means of these people's death on the ark as like a <laughs> warning to future generations. Although The coverings were already
2: part of the Ark uh, instructions. Yeah, I I, I was wondering about that. So we're we're likely looking at some sort of competing thing. I mean, keep in mind, this is likely based more on a later conflict between the Aaronite priests and others who maybe wanted their authority. So whoever's writing this is like, nope, the Aaronites are the ones who have to preside. And look at this stuff that's in our temple. Even that is proof of it. Mm, yeah. And you're like, is it? Yeah. it y- y- oh, it is. Yeah. Uh,
1: <clears throat> no, just mathematically Aaron's got two sons. Had two die for Indiana Jones mistakes and then got two left. And so like mathematically we should we should probably have like a line of succession, succession prepared, but whatever none of it makes it so it's fine it's fine whatever it's fine
2: <laughs> so you'll notice that something that gets rounded out in the king james is it talks about that they're dropped down into the graves here it is into sheol verse uh 33
0: and it, it's really it's it's kind of graphic i mean Korah, dathan and abiram uh came out and stood at the entrance of their tents together with their wives their children and their little ones I mean, so it gives you this picture of like all these, like these innocent infants standing there right before the earth swallows them up. Um, what else do we want to say about Sheol? Speaking of the earth swallowing them up though. I mean, is there a, I guess one thing we could, that I'm curious about, I, I have a sense that there's not a strong, what's the afterlife theology here? Is there an afterlife theology? Like, are we getting a glimpse of that? So that's a great question,
2: especially because in modern Judaism, Um, uh, rabbinical judaism historically stepped away from afterlife theology entirely right uh so in the wake of the destruction of jerusalem um the the oral tradition that was compiled back together that leads to modern rabbinical judaism totally stepped away from that so you ask a modern jewish person well that's kind of up in the air we don't really know. Some of it has, for, for some people, it's moved closer to kind of a Christian, that there's a reward place and a not reward place, but that's sort of fuzzy. In this time period, uh, no one's actually sure. It isn't actually until the second temple period that uh, it starts developing a more robust set of theories about what the afterlife is or what Sheol is. In this time period, it's it's probably one of two things. Um, It probably is a underworld receptacle uh, that has no delineation between wicked and good. We're going to see later that even, even some good kings or even some important kings are basically going to treat going to Sheol as just an inevitability. That, well, you also go to the dead place. Yeah. So, it could be that. And that would be very much in line with like the Greek Hades Mm -hmm. or the Babylonian Arulu. It's probably more that than the Greek one. The other option is that it's kind of a metaphor for the grave and that people may understand it differently. And um, if we trace it culturally, there's a good chance, for instance, um, there's a Hurrian goddess. The Hurrians are people who live kind of up above and to the east of where a lot of this is taking place. But we can see little fingerprints of their uh, influence on like Canaanite uh, early religion. One of them is that um, their goddess of the underworld, her name was uh, Shuala, which is very close to Sheol. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this implication that perhaps the Canaanites took the goddess uh, Shuala and maybe not understanding it, but just associating it with afterlife and also living in a region where every major neighboring kingdom had, well, not every you had Egypt, but uh, you have the Babylonians right there that have this sort of neutral afterlife. You have the early Greeks that have a neutral afterlife that maybe what they did was they kind of conflate these two strands. And it's just sort of this death place or, and or metaphor for the grave that, no matter where you bury people, they all just kind of sink and end up in the same spot. So that's maybe not a very concrete answer,
0: <laughs>
2: um, but uh, it doesn't seem like Judaism in this time period, uh, even when it's being written so much later, even really has a very developed idea of that yet. Yeah. Sorry, that was maybe boring. I
1: appreciate no. that you called. It I actually
0: think it was quite interesting.
1: Called it the dead place. Not the
0: the bad place, not the good place, not the dead place. Or the sunken place. There Uh, you go. So then we have to reaffirm Aaron's priesthood. Everyone brings a staff, all the tribes. This time the Levites are a tribe. That kind of changes, right, whether the Levites count? Yeah. Um, And the Levitical ironical stick blooms. And now the rest of them do, and that's supposed to be an end to all the complaining.
2: It would stop my complaining.
0: I mean, magic stick. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of the other stuff would have stopped my complaining. Well, that's true. That's true. You know what? And, and, and even though
2: I say that, to be honest, in a way, I like this as a study of uh, malcontent that, that I I feel like the responses are just terrible. There's no like bringing people to the table and trying to resolve issues. There's just like, well, we're going to kill some of you. And then you're like, Well, now I'm more mad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you killed those people I kind of knew. Yeah. And And their children and their, yeah. yeah. You know, and some of them got swallowed up in the earth and some got lit on fire. And I'm not even sure which, but (laughs) neither sounds pleasant for, like, my third removed nephew. And I'm just
1: ticked. And, like, he had nothing to do with it. He was just there. And he got, yeah, I'd be very angry all the time. (laughs) but you're stuck in the middle of now. You can't roam back to Egypt on your own. And If you try and roam back to Egypt, you're going to get <laughs> set on fire.
2: Well, and it does highlight that their complaining is usually dumb, right? right? Like they're like, okay, well, if we go forward into Canaan, then our women and children will become war loot. And like, okay, but they were back in Egypt too. Yeah. Don't you remember that? Like the men were enslaved and at sometimes edicts were passed to just kill them. Yeah. And what do you think was happening to women and children in that they were
0: treated like war loot? So, come on. Complain about something smart. Yeah. That that is something that struck me, too. Like, a lot of times it's just, it it does feel frustrating. But, but again, I feel like if I can, like you're saying, Amanda, too, the responses are dumb also. So, if I can step back from this and see this as, like, a big chaotic play where I can take issue with all of the characters, God included... Then, like, there's a lot to talk about, and there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot of discussion to be had about like what to do with complaining. What obviously doesn't work because we're doing this over and over, and I mean we repeat this theme so many times through these books. It almost seems like the author is beating us over the head with the fact that it never worked.
2: You know, <sighs> before Christianity got really caught up in this idea that God is perfect and unchangeable, there there's a th- early theory that I think actually has a lot of grounding here. Where the Christian theory was, well, God, we don't understand God, and God kind of didn't understand us either, and so God made Himself man, so that God could come down here and be like, "Whoa, they, these people! I now I get why they're so miserable and complaining. Yeah, <laughs> like this stinks down here. Like literally, <laughs> it stinks like poo all everywhere, and then they killed me." Wow, they really do have stuff to complain about, and then that creates Christ- that creates the new gospel. Right. The good news is that God now is like, okay, well, let's reconcile. Yeah. And you can absolutely see <laughs> where that theory is coming from because you look at this with any sort of healthy notion of dialogue. Right. And you're going, okay, no one. This is you're both doing one way communication right past each other. Right. No one is communicating. You'd think like Moses could be like, okay, but like you know, like the women were freely taken in Egypt. Like, what are you talking about? You really want like, just bring out let's bring out some old dude to talk about his awful memories. Yeah. Right. Like there's things yeah. we can do. We can, let's get, let's sit in a circle. Yeah. And, and, and you can't talk unless you hold the flowering almond staff.
0: Right? <laughs> well, and what's the point of the 70 if we're not going to do that? Yeah. Like, I mean, we create these 70 and then they never come up again because every time there's a problem, they don't, sit and talk about it with the 70, Moses just and God have an argument about whose fault it is that these people are so crappy and a whole bunch of people die. Well, in this account, the 70 pretty much
2: exists to get around, do some
0: fancy singing and dancing. (laughs) And
2: then it just says like, oh, they didn't do that again. Yeah. Oh, well, why not? Maybe that would have been therapeutic. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, so you can see where that theory comes from of God needing to be reconciled to his subjects, because not only do we not understand God, but maybe God just doesn't get into the headspace. But you have to drop the idea that God is perfect or all-knowing.
0: Yeah. Which is pretty much impossible in modern Christianity. It is. (laughs) But in this text, God is not perfect or all-knowing. Right. I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard for us to read this text, because we just can't drop that notion. But it's just so clearly not the way these authors are approaching God. Yeah. All right. So uh, then we so we reaffirm Aaron and leave the Levite priesthood. Then we're going to talk more about their duties and the stuff they get from each sacrifice, how much of what they can eat, etc. That's going to take up chapter uh, 18. eighteen. And then chapter nineteen is what to do if you touch a corpse. And uh, tell me if I got this at all right, Andrew. Okay. We're going to take a red cow, slaughter it, yep. burn it in a clean place outside the camp, and take the ashes and make holy water with the ashes. And then you have to be sprinkled by that water within on the third and seventh day after touching the corpse to be clean. How'd I do? Yeah, pretty good. And uh, like, so this
2: kind of comes out of nowhere. It's very common in Near Eastern Sacrifice to pr- prefer red animals for the sacrifice,
0: because they look bloodier. Yes, because, <laughs> because they
2: look like the thing that you are going to transmute them into, mm. which is that they are now only used for their life substance. Yeah. So it's kind of an omen in a sense. There this may be political. I mean there there's a couple things in here that are really interesting. Like, have you noticed that even the holy can pollute you? No, I missed that. Mm-hmm. So you have to be cleansed by by water. After even after going out of camp and doing this uh Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So so even the holy can pollute you. Yeah. Uh which is a pretty strong strand here. That the the idea that either the holy or the unholy, um, that those are both unusual. They're outside the human experience and both can therefore uh, be contaminating, they can pollute from one thing to another, they both require humans to cleanse to come out of that borderland and back into the realm of the usual. So very, very interesting there. And keep that in mind, that, that that whether it's divine or evil, you know, whatever is, is happening, that that is outside the realm of human experience and must be cleansed. The other thing that's interesting here is that this is probably political as well. Um, Near Eastern religion often had cults of the dead where corpses and skulls and everything were objects to be venerated and communed with. So, this might be an effort by priestly sources to kind of shut that up. Yeah. To say, okay, well, actually, corpses totally make you unclean. You can't be in communion with the camp at all. You can't, certainly, can't do anything ritual, which means you're not eating the good meat and you're kind of being shut out of the usual cultic practices. And so, probably politically motivated. Is this the best place to insert that?
0: Maybe not, but this text is such a mess. It is quite a um yeah. it's amazing, like the, the back and forth is it does kind of give you whiplash yeah. as you're reading it. So then we get the death of Miriam in twenty verse one.
2: <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, well she's dead and buried. Also it seems to be forty years later. There's like it's time lapsed.
0: Yeah, because yeah. we're like coming back now out of yeah. the wilderness.
1: Well, it does make you wonder, like about the value being placed on it, because like our stuff in Genesis is stitched together. Like I, you can clearly see the lines, but like your your chunks that go together go together. Yeah. Whereas, like, what the haphazardness of this? Like, yeah, were you just like not a like? Had we reached the chunk of time where? The P in charge of this project was just not as good at it <laughs> yeah. as the guy who did the first part of this project.
2: Yeah, whether it, whether it's talent or care, yeah. you can see the sutures in other texts in the Torah. Mm-hmm. But in this one, it's like they put a hand on a foot. You know, yeah, like yeah. like it was just botched in some ways.
1: Well, and there's like in my modern context to not be able to see the sutures I would consider the highest level, but there is like so I just wonder if like historically and like culturally if there would be value in being able to see the sutures, so I can see, okay, here's my Northern Kingdom stuff, but here's that Southern, and so like I can see the difference, but they're both equally valued, and like, so there is its own skill in that. Where yeah, like, like you said, it's it's a hand on a foot, and like we're tossing in stuff in the middle of a narrative that doesn't go in the narrative. So like you would assume if you're putting in chunks about that's how to do this kind of sacrifice. It would be immediately following a story that was originally in the text or that I've made up to insert in the text about why it's so important that we figure out how to do the Red Bull sacrifice right here. I have questions to ask this dude about like, is it, were were you bad at this? Did you care less? Is
2: like my suspicion is that it's not a function of care so much uh, as one of expediency that maybe, so they're writing, they're preserving some sort of old myth and, but at the same time, whoever is preserving it has very specific challenges to their authority. Mm-hmm. Um, whether, whether that's non Aaronites or non Levites or a political uprising from the Northern Kingdom under Reubenites, or that's a cults of the dead. And whoever is writing this just cannot help but insert some very pointed moral lessons. They can't help but moralize.
1: But they're inserting them in the wrong spot, too. Which is
2: Yeah, and they're not being as artful. But like maybe they're yeah, and I'm I'm this is all just speculation, but You know, maybe there is some where they're like, okay, people are gonna actually read this. So rather than put burying this away in Leviticus or Deuteronomy that nobody wants to read, (laughs) we're gonna put it here in this story. But they don't they don't they don't do good transitions. They don't say like, oh, and then the next generation needed reassurance. So God said to them, Here's the you know, there's none of that connective tissue.
1: Well, and they I just yes, I just keep getting caught up. Because I had so many questions last week about, so how does one, because we're going to kill a lot of people, how does one purify themselves post that? (laughs) And like, so that would have gone really well in last week's reading. Or even we're lighting people on fire and we've got plague. We've got a plague in like two chapters. That would go really well.
2: Yeah, like you could see where maybe like, okay, well, it makes sense to talk about corpse pollution because we have just barely had these two rebellions. But also, like, what are the priorities here? So, like, but we, so we talked about this after reaffirming Aaron and after, like, having a whole discussion about the entitlements of priests, Mm -hmm. which we're going to see way later is going to be abused.
1: Oh, how unexpected.
2: I know power gets abused I mean
1: that's a, that's
2: just a constant like like it, it just raises so many questions but but it is possible that maybe maybe they are less artful you know maybe they just maybe they're not as good- maybe they wake up the next day you know they're they're writing this by hand or transposing it or whatever and they wake up and like, I forgot to
1: put in the thing about the redhead <laughs> <laughs> we just.
2: And it's on a scroll, and yeah. now we got to oh oh boy.
1: I've got chunks of my dissertation that were in the wrong spot. I feel that.
2: Yeah, and if you did that on a word processor, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like imagine being like, oh, I got to cut it out of the scroll and stitch it into another part of. I'm not. Yeah. Ah, not for, worth forgive me, you know. <laughs>
1: They're not going to read this part in 2,000 years anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not a highlight.
0: It's the one thesis that actually gets read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so then the people are complaining again. And uh, Moses, we already kind of talked about this. Moses brings water out of the rock the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, do we want to say, we've, I mean, we talked about it at the beginning. I, I think we hit it pretty well. Do, do we have anything else to add now that we're actually to that part of the text? Aaron
2: dies and gets a bigger funeral.
0: I wonder when that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, are we sure he died a natural death? <laughs> well,
1: if, we, if we were still in the people-sacrificing realm, I thought, oh, we're having an Isaac like, moment there.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, how how did Eleazar get consecrated to be a priest? Just, you know, <laughs> just throwing in, that out there. In, in, yeah. in, in, A lot of people are saying. In,
1: well, in, in, in theory, we've moved past the people sacrificing part. Well, not but really. Yes, <laughs> that is, that's why I said in theory. Yeah, yeah. Because the sacrifice of the people in the rebellion made those censors holy, so.
2: How how did Aaron
0: get uh, brought to Mount Hor? Did he yeah. walk? <laughs> yeah. Was he carried... I couldn't help wonder that. So Aaron's gone. And now we're starting to kind of move into Canaan. And this is where we meet Edom. Edom refuses to give passage. Then. uh, Remember that Edom
2: is the descent of Esau. Oh, yeah. So when it addresses them as brother, it is literal as well as diplomatic language. There you go.
1: How many generations do you have to go through before that doesn't count anymore?
0: I don't know, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they're going, then there's like some towns they go through. And this time, at least it's the people's idea instead of God's idea to destroy utterly. But God signs off. If you will indeed give this people into our hands, this is verse two, then we will utterly destroy their towns. Verse three: The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and handed over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their towns. So the place was called Hormah. And from there, we like get the bronze serpent. So now there's poisonous serpents because they complain again. So I mean, with this this theme: <laughs> yep. they complain again. Now there's brazen. Now there's these poisonous serpents, and Moses gets the brass serpent. Uh, made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole and whenever a serpent bit someone that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live
1: I feel the need to point out the narrative difference here because normally it's the people complain people start dying Moses is all please stop killing them I'm bored with this now and then God kills less people than he originally planned in this instance people are dying and in the people come to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take the serpents from us. And then Moses intercedes.
2: Well, maybe this generation really is a little quicker on their
0: feet. (laughs) There you go. It is
1: is the one distinction in in the cycle.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. And then we have some more war we're going to fight. Sihon of the Amorites. I have no idea how to pronounce these names. Oh, that's and good. Og of Bashan. It's actually pronounced Og. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm... And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Do you wanna do we wanna say anything about uh the Amorites or the Bashanites? Um, other than that we're going to see them again and slaughter them even more. Well, okay. The Moabites, later. there is,
2: there is, uh, we're going to actually start getting to the point finally, where we're going to have some extra biblical corroboration oh. of uh, some of these events. So uh, in Moab, we have what we sometimes call the Moabite stone. It's also known as the Mesha Stele. Uh, it is about a king of Moab. Uh, this is dated to about 840 BCE, and it talks about the house of Omri, King Omri. We're going to read about King Omri much later, of the Israelites, and how the house of Omri has uh, taken over a portion of Moab, but Kamesh, the god of Moab, has allowed them to take it back. And, of course, this is uh, this is your usual stele where, you know, ah, and we ate them and all that Uh um but it it is the earliest extra biblical reference to yahweh Mm. so uh, that isn't yet but that is this region okay um so it's not a
0: corroboration of these particular battles no but it's
2: but it's a corroboration more of the king's period so unified and then divided kingdom period but but it is in this region. Okay. So when it talks about like uh, that there's like a division between Moab and some neighboring place, that is where that stele is, that it seems like this was a known border. And here in the text, we have them approaching this border. So a- as usual, we're looking at a text where it, it has all of these things that are clearly mythologized, but that there are glimmers of some real historical memory coming through That we can't find all of these locations. A lot of these locations where it says that they go and they burn a town, we can't find the town.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And
2: actually it's pretty easy to find that kind of thing when there's a battle because battles produce very specific archeological evidence, but then we'll have these other little hints where they are referring to concrete places that we know where they are today. We have other uh, corroboration and supporting evidence. So, uh, just as always, uh, it's an exciting endeavor. <laughs> yeah, and you can see that stelle, uh today in the Louvre.
1: Nice. Uh, of course you can.
2: <laughs> because someone stole it. And was the French. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's
1: a fun narrative distinction. It was the French this time. Yeah, it's not
2: in the Museum of London.
0: Uh, <laughs> it's not in the Natural History Museum of London. Surprise. Thank you for joining us on episode 19 of the Third Hour Podcast. We hope you'll come back next week when we will finish the book of Numbers. Thank
1: Thank you for joining us. This was The Third Hour, a Latter-day Saint homesteading podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at thethirdhourpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.